We have a reading from Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eulodia, and I plead with Cynthia to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You guys doing all right today? You're not frozen yet? Okay. We're almost. Yeah, we're getting there. And I woke up this morning, I was like, oh, winter is coming. It, it is on the verge, and I'm excited. I just need my hat a little bit. If I put the hat on, it's too hot in here. If I take it off, it feels just about right, except for the cold front that comes in every once in a while. That's what I get for shaving my head right before, you know. I didn't want to look like the bald ring around my head like I was Martin Luther, so we kept it, you know, nice and clean today, but I have no clue why I keep talking about my head. I'm sorry, everyone. Uh, pray for me. This is going to be quite a morning. So, what have we been talking about? There we go. I got worried for a second. Fruit of the Spirit, we've been talking about the idea of becoming like Jesus. And this is week four of the series where we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, these things that should be manifest in our lives. And those are manifest as we walk in the Spirit, as we abide in the Spirit, as we keep in step with the Spirit. The fruit are these beautiful things that should well up inside of us as the Lord works in us. And I know for me, as we've been going through this series, it's been a wonderful reminder. Last week, like I told you, I was struggling with joy. I was there, and I was struggling, and I was in the gazebo, and I'm like, Lord, my heart is heavy. I need you to break in. And this week, it was a little bit easier. Sam teased me, and he's like, I, you're preaching on peace. I'm worried about you, pastor. I don't know what's going on. Uh, for the most part, we've been okay, except for this morning. I'm like, this sermon's terrible. It's the worst thing ever. So if it is, you know, we'll just give it to the Lord. Um, peace is something that ultimately comes from the Lord. And today, that's what we're talking about, that third fruit of the Spirit that is peace. But before we talk about uh, peace as the fruit of the Spirit, I want to talk a little bit about the idolized version of peace that seems to be very prevalent within our culture. I think it's important for us to talk about that before we talk about the version of peace that is the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're going to go way back for a moment, because i got to quote a philosopher for you, a philosopher from the 1970s by the name of John Lennon. I know, that's one of those bad pastor jokes, and I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. In 1971, John Lennon's song, Imagine, was released. It was one of the most performed songs of the 20th century, and it was ranked very high on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you this morning, uh, because I don't want all of you to plug your ears and run out of the building like that. So it would not be well with your soul if I started singing it. But I do want to read the lyrics this morning to help us frame uh, just the idealized version of peace. 
So the pop philosopher sings this. He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. He goes on, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Now, this idealized version of peace is one of many that's prevalent in our world today. It's very similar to ones that are preached to us by the world around us. And ultimately, it's a peace where everyone does as they please us. And where you can just live for yourself, you can live for, your t- for today, and you don't really have to worry about anything. Lenin would go on to imagine peace to be a utopia of no possessions, no countries, no religion, where everyone is satisfied in themselves and just living for today. But peace, as the world puts it, is kind of an oxymoron. It says that peace simultaneously comes by living for oneself, but it also comes by living for those around you. It's this oxymoronic peace where you're just focused in on yourself, but then you're also supposed to care about all the world around you. This philosophy of Lenin is doubly ironic because he's imagining a world with no possessions, no greed, But when you look at where Lennon wrote this song, he wrote it from his, well, his mansion that would cost around $9 million in today's money on his Steinway grand piano in his 63-acre estate. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. He could not. His home was 60 times higher than the national average at the time. See, it's easy to talk about peace. It's easy to write philosophical thoughts about peace and what it takes to achieve it, but it's quite another thing to actually live lives of peace. Lenin's utopic version of peace only existed in an imagination. That's the only place it was. Imagine is how you have to get there. But for you and I, there's a real hope of peace. It's not one that we have to imagine. It's not one that we have to drum up. It's one that exists because of what happened on Calvary. It's one that exists because of what Jesus did upon the cross by dying in our place for our sin. Because of that, you and I have peace with God. We have peace that transcends understanding because of what God already did for us. He made the way. You and I are right with God. We are freed from a life that's rooted in ourselves where we're only living for today. We are free. We are made new. And this peace that comes from God is a transcendent sort of peace. It's a peace that goes beyond all things. It's a peace that's ultimately realized in the new creation. We sing a little bit about that this morning. It's a day when there's no more pain, where there's no more war, where there's no more suffering, where there's no more injustice. It's a day when all of creation is renewed, where God and man dwell together in perfect harmony. That is the ultimate peace. And it's one that for those of us who are in Christ, we get to experience. It's our blessed hope. It's our sure assurance. It's what we can cling to. And oh, what a glorious day it's going to be. A wonderful day where the peace of God rules over all the world. Where the peace of God rules over our hearts. But I think for many of us, that idea of the coming peace, the idea of God's peace, The idea that one day everything is going to be made right is one that we can get stuck in just imagining what it's going to be like, but forgetting that God's peace is here with us today. 
It's something that is here and now, but is also our future hope. It's something that, that has this fun nature of where we're looking forward to that day, but also expecting God to move in our lives today. I want to go to the idea that, that Jesus presents us in the Lord's Prayer. Because he's living in this reality where we're recognizing that there is this future hope of heaven. But it's also we're supposed to pray on earth as it is in heaven. So let me read Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. The peace that is the future peace, pray for that today. And what that looks like practically for us is living lives that reflect the fundamental truths of who God is. It's living lives that, that realize that he is God and we are not. It's rooted in that. It's rooted that, that he provides for us. He meets our needs. That he forgives us and calls us to do the same. That he empowers us to live according to his ways. And that he has given us a mission to be ambassadors of, of his kingdom, whereby he brings heaven to earth. We pray on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the future peace, and we also pray for it today. That's what the Lord's Prayer is instilling in us. It's instilling in us that these things are key to a life of peace. That it's about getting outside of ourselves. It's about seeking God's will, surrendering to him, putting ourselves under him, and through that we will have peace with others, peace within ourselves, and ultimately peace with God. For you and I, peace doesn't have to be imagined, but it does have to be cultivated. That's what we're talking about in the fruit of the Spirit. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It happens by the Spirit working in us, but we have to cultivate a life in which the fruit can flourish. We have to do that. And so what I want to do is I want to dive into our scripture this morning in Philippians 4, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 5 by talking about what it looks like to have peace with others. Anyone here want to live at peace with others? Okay, got like four of you. Okay, good. The rest of you, like we'll have the brawl after church. Like we'll put on the boxing gloves, you guys can go after it. Okay, Bob's really excited. You got too excited about that, Bob. We all want to live at peace with, with others, but sometimes that's really hard to do, right? Like, we can admit that. It's difficult to do. It's difficult to live at peace. So let's see what Paul has for us in Philippians 4, 1 through 5. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Synthache, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is I'm really thankful for this passage of Scripture because it really helps us to realize that people have been messing up since the beginning. And that's of great comfort to me, like to know that Paul has to take time out of his schedule in the middle of this letter to the church in Philippi to tell these two women to agree. Like that's great encouragement to me because they didn't get it then and we still aren't getting it now. And I'm like, okay, I don't have to be perfect. It takes a process of how the Lord works within us. So, this is Paul writing. He's taking some time to help these women agree in the Lord. 
After expressing his love for the congregation, he's encouraging them to stand for him, he, he turns his attention to these two workers, these fellow workers who have labored at his side, who have been on mission for God, who have done great things for God, who have seen the Lord work in their lives and in the lives of others, but right now they're in the midst of a disagreement. Now, I know this is hard for you to imagine, but sometimes church people disagree about things. I know that never happens ever, ever, ever in your life, but sometimes church people disagree about things, and they can be very well set in their ways from time or time. You know, we're not going to disagree on the carpet color. Well, we might sometimes. We're not going to, okay, I'm going to, never mind. We're going to go back to the notes. Ultimately, we don't know why these two people are in disagreement. We, we're not clued in to, to why they're struggling. It may be over the carpet color in the house church they're part of. Probably not, but we don't know why they're disagreeing, but they are. They're disagreeing, and it's causing difficulty in their lives and the lives of the church. Enough so that it's gotten to Paul. And Paul is, you know, just living his best life right now from a jail cell in Rome. Word has gotten to Paul in his prison cell in Rome, and it's enough of something that he feels need to take time out of his schedule, to write it within this letter, to have these women agree. And I love this because it shows us how important unity is. It shows us how important peace with others are. Here Paul is gently but firmly pleading with these two women to be of the same mind in the Lord. And that phrasing is really wonderful because Paul isn't just saying, hey, live with one another. Like, agree to disagree, like we often do. He's telling them, have the same mind in the Lord. To set their sights upon God and his mission. To find themselves in agreement with what God has already done for them and what he is currently doing within them today. Paul is desperate to see these two lay down their fight to drop their swords and to unify together as they had done in the past. They were fellow workers with Paul. They were co-workers for the sake of the gospel. And Paul wants them to once again join in mission together, to lay down their disagreements, to unify in the cause of Christ. And if you know a thing or two about Paul's ministry, you may be thinking of some disagreements that he's had. You may be thinking of him confronting Peter with, when Peter's not living right with the Lord. Or you may be thinking of his difficulty with Barnabas and John Mark. And you're like, may, nope, not thinking about that at all. Well, here, let me help you. Uh, because Paul knows a thing or two about conflict. He knows a thing or two about ministries that fall out of having difficulty with people. And I have no way of knowing this, but I think as Paul is writing this, he's probably doing it with tear-filled eyes. He's, he's reminded of his own difficulties with fellow workers in Christ. He, he's reminded of the pain and the turmoil and the struggle. He's thinking back to Barnabas and John Mark. Listen to Acts 15, 36 through 40. Sometime later, this is after Paul's missionary journey, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Philanthia and had not continued with them in their work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commanded by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Paul's writing Philippians 4 with a backstory of having gone through a sharp disagreement, of having gone through ministry pain and ministry hurt, of separating with a man called the son of encouragement, struggling with him. And so Paul, later on in his ministry, later on in his life, is recognizing that, man, guys, agree in the Lord. Put aside your differences. Put aside your disagreements and remember what God has done. 
Now, Scripture ultimately doesn't clue us in of whether or not Paul and Barnabas ever reconcile. We don't, we don't know that. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But it does clue us in in this wonderful portion of Scripture toward the end of Paul's ministry about his relationship with John Mark. And if you go to 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. And he's telling him among many things that he needs. And right at the end of that, he tells Timothy to bring John Mark with him. Bring John Mark with you because he is a great help to me in ministry, is what Paul ultimately says. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi with an understanding that you've got to move past the disagreements. You've got to move past the disunity. You've got to unify together for the cause of the gospel. Paul had experienced that disunity before. He had seen the effects of it firsthand. And because of that, he writes urging this church, urging these women to agree in the Lord, to put aside all the things so that they wouldn't have the experience that he had, so that they wouldn't separate and go their own ways. See, a lack of unity is something that disrupts peace. And it's something that can cause so much division that it actually inhibits the mission of God. Unity is not just something that, that we strive towards. It's essential to seeing the mission of God fulfilled in our midst. As we have the same mind in the Lord, the Lord is more free to work among us because we're focused on his mission, not on the color of the carpet or anything else like that. When we agree in the Lord, the Lord is free to work among us. But when we war in the church over any number of issues, it wreaks havoc and it quenches the spirit. And that's something that we must avoid. A church that is always divided is a church that doesn't have the mind of Christ. It's one that will not be successful in seeing God's mission go forth in its midst. Now, the church is not perfect. We don't claim to be a perfect church here at North Country Alliance. If you're looking for that, good luck. Sorry, this isn't it, and I don't think you're going to find it, but we're going to do the best we can, all right? We're going to try and do this. We're going to try and unify. And what I love at the end of Paul's, Paul's encouragement here is it's for the entire church to be peacemakers. He doesn't just talk to the two women. He doesn't just tell them to agree and have the same mind of Christ, and if not, good luck. He says that the whole church is to be peacemakers. That's his emphasis in verse 3. He tells his true companion, the church in Philippi, to help these women. Help these women. You and I, all of us here, all of us that are part of the church, have to make peace our goal have to make unity our goal. Peacemaking is the ministry of everyone in the church. It's not just for the pastors or, or the elders or the church board. It's a ministry of every person in the church. We are called to be people of peace. And what that may look like practically for us is being steadfast in refusing to partake in petty disagreements. And that takes a lot of work sometimes. Because there are plenty of things to disagree about. It takes work to be above that. To say, I'm not going to engage with that. I'm not going to engage in gossiping about others or in talking about them behind their backs or, say, or lamenting as much as I can about how I wish things were different inside the church. Let's not be people who are about that. Instead, let's be people who pray for one another, who love one another who seek the highest good in one another's lives, who confront our brothers and sisters when they do something that's not in accord with that, who gently bring them to repentance. The people in the church, yeah, there are going to be times that disagreements happen. But we have to remember, as we have those disagreements, as those things arise, as those difficulties come up, the person that's sitting across from us is not our opponent. 
They're not on the other side. There are people, as Paul emphasizes in verse 3, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And when when we remember that, when we put that first, when we put that as first importance in our lives, it makes peace much easier. Because then it's not an opponent that we have to win. It's our brother and sister in Christ that we get to work with to see the gospel go forth in all the world. It becomes easier to live at peace when we do that. Because at the end of the day, this idea of unity, this idea of living at peace is lordship. It's about having Jesus as our Lord. It's recognizing his lordship in our lives. Jim Perrin, he has this excellent book on church conflict called Making Peace. It's one that I would highly recommend, as, long as, as well as The Peacemaker with, by Ken Sand. Um, there are wonderful books on this idea of living at peace with one another in the church, which can be difficult. But he says this in his book, Jim Perrin. He says, church conflict is never about who is right and who is wrong. It's about lordship and submission. It is about a people who have stopped being the body of Christ. When we're always focused on warring and being right and being wrong, we cease to be the body of Christ. We then just cease to be a political body or an organization trying to get our way. But when we commit to the cause of Christ, when we make the Great Commission our highest commission, when we look to see his vision go forth in all the world, then those petty disagreements, they fall to the wayside because we're focused on what God is doing in our midst, not, once again, the color of the carpet. There's no, like, disagreement over the color of the carpet. I just want to make sure I'm clear on that. It's just just the one that's in my head because I hear about all the church splits over the color of the carpet. Don't worry, I'm not, like, being, you know, like, trying to win my argument here. Like, we don't have anything going on that I'm aware of about the color of the carpet. It it hasn't made its way to me yet, but just one example that keeps coming to me. It's not even in my notes, it just keeps coming. Living at peace with others, it requires us to recognize that we're not perfect. None of us here are perfect, and we can all say amen to that. No one sitting beside you is perfect. Every single one of us needs to be humble. If we're always trying to be right, we're never going to live at peace. We're never going to have unity as our goal. Now, when it comes to theological matters of first importance, then yes, absolutely, stand your ground. But most of the things we talk about are not those theological matters of first importance. On matters of things like worship style and carpet color, that one is in my notes right there. Uh, That's why it's there. I I was just getting ahead carpet color, other things, those things that we can disagree about, where there's no one right way of doing it. Let's be like Elsa and let it go. (laughs) Sarah got real excited about Elsa. Woo! Cold never bothered her anyway. Sorry, we're going to get back. Now for some of you, This is going to be really hard. My personality type, it's really hard for me. It's going to be difficult for us to be people that are people of peace, people of unity, people who are always seeking to put the mission of God ahead of everything else. It's going to be a lot of work for us, but it's key to peace and unity which are essential to the mission of God. Our names and those gathered with us here in the church are written in God's book of life. Let's remember that. Let's remember that those of us that are gathered here, we are saved, we are redeemed, we are reconciled, we are adopted into God's family. And so when we disagree, let's do so charitably. Let's come alongside one another and say, does this really matter that much? Most of the time, the answer to that is going to be When we spend our time rejoicing because of what God has done, because we are written in God's book of life, we're going to spend more time at peace with one another. 
That's why I love that Paul goes on to verse 4 there. Right after he's talking to these women and the church, telling them to agree and have the same mind in the Lord, he busts right out into rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He just reminded them that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice that you've been saved. Rejoice that that you are new, that everything in you has been redeemed. Rejoice in that. And as we do so, it literally changes everything. As we focus on that, it changes everything. And Paul, right afterwards, he, he shows that this mindset should overflow. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. After we rejoice, after we focus, after we remember what God has done, let your gentleness be evident to all. And the word for gentleness here, it's a little bit different than the gentleness that is a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, This word here is really peaceable. And and that's how it's translated in James 3.17. It's as peaceable. What Paul is saying is that as we rejoice in God's salvation, we are to put on a countenance of peace filled living. As we rejoice, as we remember all he's done, put on the the countenance of peace-filled living. In Romans 12, 18, he says it like this. And this is one that I think we should all just like tattoo on our foreheads. Don't, Don't actually do that, please. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I'm going to read that one again because it's important for us. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Simple, but not easy. It's something that requires humility. It requires us laying down the sword. It requires us focusing on the things of God. Paul knows that this isn't easy. He knows that this is difficult. This idea of letting our gentleness be evident to all, being peaceable to all people, he knows that that's going to be difficult. And so he ends it with the the invocation, the Lord is near. And this is less of an eschatological time frame. It's less of saying that, oh, the Lord's coming back right now. You better be ready and live like this. But more of a reminder of Jesus' lordship and his coming reign. The Lord is near. He is coming. So let's live lives that reflect that. Live lives where the Lord's gentleness is evident to all. Where the Lord's peace is evident to all. It's Paul saying that Jesus is Lord. He will return to reign as king. And therefore, let's live a peaceable life. A gracious life. One that points people to God. Peace with others is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit that comes as we walk with the Spirit, as we cultivate a life that's in step with the Spirit. This happens as we fix our eyes upon Jesus. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith. This idea of the fruit of the Spirit, peace welling up in us, comes forth as we live in God's love. As we remember what he's done for us and we see other people through the lens of God's love for him. This is of first importance. This is the basics of Christianity, that God is a God of peace. And we must get this right if we are to be people who look like Jesus. Now with all of that said, with this idea of peace with others behind us, I want to turn our attention to inner peace now, which is what Paul's really talking about in this next section of Scripture. Because I think for many of us, or at least some of us, we may be thinking, okay, peace with others, that's fine and that's good, but I'm struggling. Like, I don't even have peace within me. Like, I'm fearful and I'm anxious and there's something inside me that's just fighting all the time. There's turmoil. Like, peace with others, that's good and all, Pastor, but how do I get inner peace? How do I get free from all of this? Well, I got great news for you. Really, really, really simple. All right? You guys ready? We're going to read it. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
So the solution to a lack of peace, the solution to anxiousness, the solution to all of that difficulty inside of us is to be anxious about nothing and to pray. You guys got that? See, it's simple. Come on. Like, like Paul just wrote it there for us. It's simple. Be anxious about nothing and pray. Like, come on. Okay, okay. It's simple, but it's not easy, right? It's simple, it's straightforward, but it's not easy. It's one that as we read this, I'm like, Paul, yeah, okay, okay, I got it. You know, be anxious about nothing. There's so much to be anxious about, Paul. What are you talking about? In every situation, pray with Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving? Like, I'm struggling, Paul. Come on now. Simple concept, not an easy one. But Paul isn't giving us an exercise in futility. He's giving us a practical way to find peace if we'll accept it. And that's the key there. If we'll accept this, it is the key to bringing out the inner peace that we so long for. What he's saying is that when we feel a lack of peace, when we feel our lives being tossed to and fro by the anxiousness within inside of us, we are to cast all of that on God and rest in his lordship. This is a call to surrender control, to put it upon God and not ourselves. And if you, we can remember back to this summer, we spent some time going through the Sermon on the Mount. And we talked about this quite a bit when we got to Matthew 6, where Jesus tells us not to worry about anything. Because God is the one who ultimately takes care of us. And even if we do worry, we can't even cause the hair on our head to grow. Even if we do worry, it's of no good to us. Okay, thanks, Rob. You don't have to, you know, hold up your beautiful, luscious locks back there, okay? We can't even cause the hair on our heads to grow. Why worry? Why be anxious? Why suffer over and over again trying to make things better in our life when we know that we can't? We can't do it. We can't do it on our own. We control nothing. Here's our reality. In this life, there are going to be countless situations that arise that threaten our peace. There are finances, there are relationships, there are finances, there are relationships, there are finances, there are relationships, there's sin that we commit, sin that others commit. There's going to be countless things that come up that threaten the peace that we can have. Those things are going to happen. In Christ, we're promised trials. They don't magically go away. We can't change the, the situations that we're going to face. But we can and must change how we respond to those situations. They're always going to come up. And we can't be people that just go from reaction to reaction to reaction to reaction. Instead, we need to be people that have these situations and immediately surrender them to God and pray and give them over to him. Instead of worrying, instead of trying to figure these things out on our own, we should be people that surrender them to God through prayer. And maybe you're like, come on, pastor. You're telling me that the solution is prayer, that I'm going through all these things and you just want me to pray and surrender. I've tried that and I didn't get what I wanted. See, our error in prayer and the reason why we lack peace is that we are often only satisfied if God answers us precisely according to our ideal solution. I'm not telling you to pray and be like, God, this is really what I need you to do, and you got to do this for me to have peace. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, present your requests to God, and then you will have peace. The process of prayer, the process of surrendering is what brings us peace. Not God bringing us to our ideal solution. Not God bringing us out of the midst of the chaos. It's the act of surrender that brings us peace. He doesn't say that God will answer us as we wish. That's what we, we want prayer to be, right? That's what we want and what we hope that, that Paul says here. But it's not what he says. 
He doesn't say that God will do as we wish and that will bring peace. He says, present your request to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your life. You're still going to be in the situation. You're still going to have struggles. You're still going to have all these things coming up. But the peace of God will guard your hearts and your mind. In the midst of the situation, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the trouble, God will guard your hearts and your minds as you surrender it to him. Jerry Bridges says it like this. The result promised to us when we come to God in prayer with thanksgiving is not deliverance, but the peace of God. One of the reasons we don't find this peace is because all too often we will not settle for anything other than deliverance from the trouble. Peace is promised. It's promised as we surrender all of our anxiety, all of our worry to God in prayer. Will things change in our situation? Maybe. But through prayer, we will be changed. The situation may or may not change. God may do something miraculous in the situation, and there's cause for great rejoicing, or it may still be the same, but we are different by surrendering it to God. That's what Paul is getting at here. Prayer is practical lordship. It's a reminder that we are not in charge and that worrying does nothing to change things. It doesn't do anything to change things. But it's the peace of God which transcends all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus when we surrender our worry to God. Now some of you here, maybe you're living in constant worry. And if you're honest, it's causing you to live at odds with God. Maybe you're struggling with all the things that are happening in your life and you're just like, I'm anxious and I'm angry and there's difficulty and there's all this stuff that's happening. You're bitter, you're, you're reactionary, and overall you just got this unpleasant demeanor. I want to call you to understand that you don't control everything. It's not all something you can control. It's not all something that you can change. When we realize this, it changes everything. Because then we're, we're not going from situation to situation to situation, being like, God, all this is happening. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes we need to look in the mirror and realize that the reason for our struggles and our difficulty is because we're not surrendering it to God. We're just looking at ourselves and trying to, to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, and it's never good enough, friends. We can't do it on our own. We have to surrender it to God. Place it under his lordship. God is bigger than us. Amen? When we realize that and cast our worries upon him, the weight of all of our stuff, the weight of all of our difficulty, it lifts off of our shoulders, and we discover the life that God really has for us. That life that's truly life, life to the full, as Jesus puts it. It's one of freedom, one of grace, one of peace that transcends understanding. Too often we ride the roller coaster of worry and anxiety while we just hang on for dear life. It's time to let go, to cling to God to grab hold of him, to let go of all the things that are coming before us, because they're going to keep coming before us. God doesn't want us to hold on to those. He doesn't want us to live lives where we're just overwhelmed by the situations that we face, where we constantly struggle, and then finally find a little bit of peace before the next situation comes up. That's not what God has for us. He wants us to live a life of sustained peace. Not because we're, we're, we're removed from all the struggle, not because there's nothing going on in our lives, but because we have found peace in him. We dwell in him, we cling to him. And the tricky bit of this idea of living in peace with one another, having it within us, is that it requires a full reorientation of our lives. 
It's not just a one-time surrender, and then we're like, okay, good, I got peace within me, and then that's not how it works. It requires a complete reorientation, and that's what Paul gets at in Philippians 4, 8-9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. God isn't a band-aid God. He doesn't give us a small fix after small fix after small fix. He is the God who seeks to transform us. He wants to fully transform us. We can't escape the situations that are going to come up, that are going to threaten to throw us into anxiety and worry. But we can escape the roller coaster of emotional dissonance by putting into practice the life that God intends for us. By putting these things into practice. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And the ultimate embodiment of these things is found in Jesus. He is the excellent and praiseworthy one. As we fill our minds with the things of God by dwelling on Jesus, we step into the transformational life where we become more like Jesus and rest in peace. But if we're constantly filling our minds with other stuff, if we're dwelling on the other things, and we can create a whole list of them, but we're not going to. If we're constantly filling our minds with those things, then we're not going to have peace. It's no wonder that we're anxious. It's no wonder that we have difficulty. Our thoughts guide our way of life. Everything around us is discipling us and forming us into the people that we are today and the people that we're becoming. Let's be people that are resolved to be discipled in the way of Jesus alone, not in anything else. Let's be people that dwell on these things that Paul tells us to dwell on. See, Paul's clear in verse 9 that we can't just understand it theoretically, but we have to put it into practice. And I love what he says at the end. He says, whatever you've seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And I love this for a few reasons. Let me go through them very quickly as we close. First, it shows that Paul practiced what he preached. I love that. Paul's saying, whatever you've seen in me, put this into practice yourselves. Paul lived the life that he wanted his disciples to live. He was fully embodied in this Christian life. And that makes me reflect upon the question of what kind of life am I reflecting to others? When people look at me, do they see a person of peace or a person of worry? Do they see someone who is devoted to the things of God or someone that's devoted to other things? What do other people see in me? What kind of life do they see? Second, as Paul's writing this, it reminds me that the Christian walk is one of practice, not perfection. We're not always going to do it perfectly, and that's okay. The Christian life is one of grace-fueled obedience, and that grace portion cannot be underscored. We're not always going to get it right, but God's grace sustains us. As we practice the way of Jesus, we are transformed into people who look like Jesus. It's a process that happens more and more day by day as we practically surrender. And thirdly, it finally shows us that God himself is the object of our worship, not the benefits that he provides. Throughout this, Paul is talking about the peace of God, the peace of God. And here at the end, he flips it. And the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God is a benefit, but the God of peace is the promise. He is the one who walks with us and guides us and leads us and lavishes his love upon us. And that is the beautiful assurance that the God of peace is with us. 
So friends, let's remember the God of peace who is walking with us. Let's dwell on who he is. Let's dwell on his ways. And let's be people who put it into practice. Let's not be satisfied in living for today or in an idealized version of peace. Let's look to Jesus. Let's commit to unity. Let's remember our salvation and let's be transformed. Let's walk in the way of Jesus so that we can become people who look like Jesus. Let's let the fruit dwell within us richly. Let's cultivate the lives that make that possible. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, we come to you today in the midst of the chaos of life. And we're gathered here as one body. But each of us here, we're, we're going through some stuff. We've got difficulties and trials and a number of things that pull us out of peace. And this morning, I pray that you would help us to have peace. Not a peace that's fleeting, but a peace that's rooted in you peace that primarily remembers that we have peace with God because of Jesus. I pray that you would help us to be people who are anxious about nothing, who present our requests with thanksgiving before you, who surrender the situations that we come across. Now, we can't do this on our own. We don't have the solutions. We don't have the things to say. We need you. Help us to be people that surrender. Who give it to you. Help us to walk in your peace. Knowing that we can't change anything on our own. God, we ask for you to dwell with us. That's the promise that the God of peace will be with us. God, that's what we ask. Walk with us. Lead us. Guide us. Bring us into all truth. It's in Christ's name that I pray.